Section 8 of The Book of the Ocean. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of the Ocean by Ernest Ingersoll. Chapter 6 Warships and Naval Battles. Part 1 Wooden Walls from Salamis to Trafalgar. Part 1. Naval warfare, properly speaking, begins with the Battle of Salamis, 480 B.C., when the Greek fleet, under the guidance of Themistocles, destroyed or put to flight a horde of 1,200 Persian vessels and saved Athens to become the foundation of a strong nation. Of these ships at Salamis we know very little, except that they were large, open or partly open rowboats having platforms at the stern and prow, and perhaps amidships in some cases, where soldiers might stand and discharge their arrows out of the way of the rowers beneath them, or leap aboard the enemy's boats whenever they could be reached. They were, in short, early types of the galleys, which subsequently became vessels of war, as powerful and serviceable under the conditions that they were intended to meet as our battleships today, and probably safer as a fighting place for their crews. That from the rowboats, rather than from sailboats, should have been developed, the highest type of Mediterranean war vessel of ancient times, is not surprising when one remembers the light and variable winds of that region, the usually smooth seas, the abundance of harbors, and above all, the need of having the vessels under complete control when all fighting had to be done at short range, chiefly by ramming and boarding, in fact. It must be remembered, too, that labor was cheap, and it was considered that the most proper and economical, not to say humane, use to which prisoners of war could be put was to make them rowers in public ships, while enough remained to be sold as slaves to the owners of private yachts and privateering galleys. One may imagine a worse fate than this. The earliest war vessels of the eastern Mediterranean, those of Homer's time, for instance, seem to have been long and rather narrow rowboats the best of which had two tiers of oars, one above the other. The lower, shorter tier, working through oval holes in the side, and the upper, in notches, or thole-pins in the gunwale. This left the upper rowers exposed, and hence such vessels were called affract, or unfenced, and it was not until the Greeks began to become prominent that the bulwarks were raised high enough to protect all the rowers, and war vessels generally became cataphract, or fenced. It appears that in very early times, warships, biremes, with not only two tiers or banks of oars, but even those triremes with three banks were used and the trireme became the type of the most numerous and effective vessels of the Greek and Roman navies in their prime. 
and as weight and power gradually increased, the crushing power of collision began to be utilized, and ramming came in as a more and more important feature in naval tactics. As the Greeks seem to have first applied these new ideas, it is quite likely that their success at Salamis was due to these improvements. The arrangement was this. From the side of the vessel, inside, projected three rows of benches a yard apart, horizontally supported at their inner ends by timbers that slanted toward the stern at such an angle that the top seat of each row was exactly above the bottom seat of the row behind it. The oars of the top tier, thranite, were about fourteen feet long, those of the middle tier, zygite, about ten and one-half feet, and the lowermost one, thalamite, seven and one-half feet. Each oar was so nearly balanced in its own oar port as to work in the easiest manner. Tied there by a thong, and surrounded by a loose sleeve of leather, which kept out the water. Each one of the lowermost oars was worked by a single man, the middle ones by two, and those of the third tier by three or four, as they were of great length. In later times, larger vessels were invented for special purposes. Four-banked quadriremes, five-banked quinquiremes, and so on, even up to one of forty banks but as we are unable to understand how it was possible for more than five or six tiers of oars to be operated, we may leave these extraordinary galleys to special students. The structure of these vessels gave them the greatest strength combined with lightness. They had very strong keels and stems, the latter peculiarly braced, and along their sides ran whaling pieces, or fore and aft bracing timbers, the lowermost curving inward, forward, until they met in front of the stem at the waterline, where they were braced by massive timbers, and prolonged into a sharp three-toothed spur, of which the middle tooth was the longest, reaching out perhaps ten feet. This was covered with metal, usually bronze, and formed the beak. Above it, but projecting less beyond the stem-post was the procombolion, or second beak, in which the prolongation of the upper set of whaling pieces met. This was generally fashioned into the figure of a ram's head, and also covered with metal. These bosses, when a vessel was rammed, completed the work of destruction begun by the sharp beak at the water-level, giving a racking blow which caused it to heel over, and so eased it off the beak, releasing the latter before the weight of the sinking vessel could come upon it. The stem was often carried up into a curving ornament, called the acrostolion, beneath which was a stout-walled deck-space for sailors or the fighting men to do their work, and the stern-post similarly supported a lofty, richly ornamented structure, a plustron, arcing over the officers' quarters. Platforms extended up and down the center of the ship between the rowers, and over their heads was a deck having walls or bulwarks where the fighting men 
in their various engines stood in addition to this an external defended gallery for soldiers and boarders usually ran along the outside of the bulwarks above the oars and awnings of rawhide were stretched over all to ward off grappling irons it must not be forgotten however that these galleys also had three pole masts and certain sails probably a huge split lug with possibly a square topsail at the mainmast while the fore and mizzenmasts carried lateens at the top of each stick was a round protected cage filled with archers and slingers the prototype of our military mast nor are the size and force of these greek and roman men of war to be despised the ordinary trireme had crew of two hundred to twenty-five men in all a hundred and seventy-four of whom were rowers the space for cabins and stowage must have been little but this was of small account since the war galleys rarely undertook long cruises their tactics being a rush and a sharp fight and then a quick return to harbor where it was the practice to draw the lighter galleys up on the shore each night the transportation of the ships across the isthmus of corinth was not then so astonishing a feat as it is sometimes called rome's experience however gained in war and in suppressing the levantine pirates taught her to abandon the heavy many-banked unwieldy vessels she had at first developed from greek and carthaginian models and to trust to a much lighter swifter and more manageable style with far less upper structure and rigging and having only two banks of oars these were called liburnian galleys with this change came naturally one of tactics capture by chase and boarding taking the place of the earlier attempt to crush by ramming and overriding the antagonist the armament comprised not only as many soldiers with bows and javelins as could find room in action but various machines of offence and defence such as catapults hurling huge stones or marble grape-shot spear-headed rams or huge knives that could be run out against an enemy's hull or rigging arrangements for smashing the enemy's decks cauldrons swung at yard-arms holding burning pitch or oil to be poured upon the foe and often cranes corvi provided with grapples that if one could be made fast would lift an adversary out of water and turn him upside down no more vivid picture of the life and cruise and battle of a roman man-of-war's man is known to me than that penned by general lew wallace in ben-hur but i cannot of course transfer all of it to my pages as i should like to do and an extract here and there would only spoil the pleasure in store for you in re-reading it all of medieval naval warfare in the mediterranean the struggles between the weak principalities and powers that followed the decay of rome and lasted for a dozen centuries we know very little 
there is more obscurity here than even elsewhere in the dim history of the dark ages it is evident however that not much change took place in naval architecture the byzantine empire succeeded to rome as mistress of the seas and we know that in the ninth century the byzantine emperors were still building biremes then called dromones armed with tubes for spouting greek fire it should be noted that boats having only a single bank of oars came now to be called galleys and this is the first and proper use of the word though popularly it is now or until recently was applied to any large many-oared boat with the introduction of gunpowder and cannon into naval vessels the ornamental topworks a picturesque relic of which remains in the venetian gondola of today disappeared as we see when the clear light of history begins to shine on the fleets of venice and genoa when these cities were leaders of the world in navigation turkey the successor of the old byzantine empire and of the greek power was then as now the great enemy of the west but in those days it was aggressive its fleets were strong and well manned and they threatened to cross the adriatic and fasten the baneful grasp of the muslim upon italy in revenge for the persecution of the moors in spain perhaps they would have done so had not john of austria admiral of the allied navies of spain venice and rome won that great victory in the harbor of lepanto near the isthmus of corinth which destroyed nearly the whole turkish fleet and released fifteen thousand christian galley slaves this was in october fifteen seventy one and it saved the west from being overrun by the barbarous east as exactly fifteen and a half centuries before it had been saved near actium a famous promontory on the northwestern coast of greece where octavius defeated the forces of antony and cleopatra it is doubtful whether the ships that fought in the later battle were much different in either build or rig from those of the earlier conflict but their decks no more gleamed with men in armor and in place of catapult crane and cauldron were cannonades and falconets arquebuses and hand grenades perhaps however they had already taken on more of that long glow shape characterizing later the french and italian galleys common enough in mediterranean ports up to about one hundred years ago which differed mainly from the ancient ones in their use of much longer oars or sweeps balanced upon a sort of extended outrigger or shelf projecting from the vessel's side the galleass of which we hear in the thirteenth and fourteenth centuries was a large warship of this style which foreshadowed the atlantic ships to be spoken of presently in having castellated structures fore and aft in which were mounted sometimes twenty guns besides its two or three latine rigged masts it often had thirty-two sweeps on each side each about forty-five feet long and handled with a long slow stroke by five or six men in france mainly convicts condemned to the galleys 
such vessels continued to be used by the spaniards maltese italians and turks long after they had been abandoned by the french navy but latterly after the suppression of piracy in which they were of especial service for the conveyance of important personages and occasions of ceremony rather than for practical service and in the state barge of the doge of venice brought out annually to this day at the ceremony of re-wedding venice to the adriatic we have a magnificent relic of these stately craft but such boats were adapted only to the comparatively calm and simple navigation of the mediterranean and although imitated in the similar waters of the eastern baltic they never flourished north of spain when they gradually disappeared their successor inside the gates of gibraltar was the zebek which began to appear under arab or spanish control in the seventeenth century this was supposed to be able to withstand any weather and carried from fourteen to twenty-two guns on deck with small ports for oars between the guns a picturesque relative was the portuguese muleta the english liked this kind of vessel on account of its strong sailing qualities but when they took it into their own stormy waters they found it necessary to raise its sides to fit them for breasting the high seas that roll in the open atlantic or are tossed by the contending tides of the english channel and developed out of it a style of swift and handy vessel called a frigate during all these middle ages the northern nations had been sailing and fighting on the sea as well as the southerners stories of sturdy battles have come down in tradition and in such chronicles as those of Froissart. but those old conflicts seem to have produced little change in shipbuilding or armament until the experience and wisdom brought back by the crusaders began to spread abroad even in the half-savage north and to produce that revival of learning which by and by was to make such striking changes in western europe and here the leaders are englishmen in those days no national navies properly speaking existed in england france or northward when a monarch wished to transport troops by water to some other land or make a naval expedition or campaign he fitted out the ships that belonged to the crown as the king's personal property and compelled his subjects to furnish the rest just as his feudal provinces and cities and lords were expected to equip and bring to his standard any land forces required it was to systematize this method somewhat in england that william the conqueror established the sink ports and gave them certain privileges on condition of their furnishing ships with twenty-four men in each for fifteen days in case of emergency now and then at first englishmen were disposed to resist the arrest of ships which might easily mean the ruin of their business and special laws had to be made to quell this reluctance another quaint and significant feature of that practice was this in every fleet one or more ships were set apart as royal and either the king or his representatives occupied them with court ceremony to carry out the fiction of royal dominion over the sea as well as upon the land 
it naturally followed in england that after her navy had shown its power and signalized it especially by a brilliant victory over spain in thirteen eighty edward the third should have assumed as an additional title king of the seas an act which had far-reaching consequences during the fifteenth century something like an established navy was foreshadowed but it was not until the reign of henry the seventh when in the end of the fifteenth century the whole world was exploring the oceans and awakening to the importance of sea power that the first vessel properly called a national warship was built equipped manned and sustained at government expense by england this was the great harry a floating fortress rather than a ship for with her towering overweighted castles fore and aft she was unseaworthy and came near being sunk by a slight rolling which poured the water into her lower ports but a better known great harry was the henry gras de Doux, built by henry the eighth this king was the real founder of the british navy providing for it many good ships dockyards trained officers and regularly enlisted crews the advantage of this organization and the superiority of english seamanship were demonstrated in the next reign by the defeat of the spanish armada england was then at war with spain and philip the second thought to end the matter by means of the greatest expedition ever heard of it began to be prepared in fifteen eighty seven under the title of the most fortunate armada but an english squadron under drake attacked the rendezvous at cadiz destroyed over one hundred vessels and huge quantities of stores and then so ravaged the neighboring coasts as to delay spain's project for a whole season in midsummer of fifteen eighty eight however after an unlucky start in which it was driven back by storms the dreaded armada appeared in the english channel like a close flock of huge birds drifting along the british coast it consisted of about a hundred and thirty ships seven of which exceeded one thousand tons burden and numerous small craft and was armed with nearly three thousand cannon its commander was the duke of medina sidonia who was a most incompetent man for the post and it bore besides nearly ten thousand sailors and galley slaves over ten thousand soldiers but this naval force was not intended to attack england until after it had ferried over from belgium the spanish army of the duke of parma to such a force as this england opposed a miserably small fleet only thirty-four vessels that could be called ships but she hastily armed as many more smaller ones as she could amid great fright and excitement until finally admiral howard commanded eighty or ninety ships and boats there was no deficiency in his men however the pick of english sea-dogs was at his call and among the leaders of the pack were men we have already met elsewhere francis drake john hawkins martin frobisher and others what a sight it must have been on that august day as these ships 
flying the huge banners of Castile, standing high out of the water, with lofty castles forward and aft, gaudy with carving and color, the light rippling here from silken pennants and flashing there from shining cannon and huge poop lanterns, moved past the southern headlands of England, watched by half-raging, half-fearful crowds. And how mystified and indignant must these watching country people have been when Admiral Howard, their only defender, calmly let the Armada sail by Plymouth, where the English fleet lay hid in the Solent, and Captain Drake coolly insisted upon finishing a game of bowls before he would go down to his waiting frigate. But these captains knew what they were about. In those days as now, in fighting with sailing vessels, the advantage is usually with the one who attacks from the windward side, for then he can maneuver his vessel, whereas his enemy, heading toward the wind, can do so only with difficulty, if at all and hence cannot easily take a good position, or escape from a bad one. Howard, therefore, waited until the closely crowded squadrons of Spain had passed beyond him up the channel, when he issued from Plymouth Harbor, bore down upon their rear from the windward, and proceeded, as one of the reports expressed it, to pluck their feathers. Then began some wonderful days of sea history, and naval schooling. The Spanish vessels were floating castles armed with heavy guns, and crowded with soldiers armed with muskets and harkbusses of crock, that is, great blunderbusses, supported upon a portable rest. They kept in a close crowd, like a phalanx of old Swiss infantry, and supposed that the English would move against them in another dense raft and that they would fight from deck to deck of grappled ships as if they were on land. But the English knew better. They had few ships as large. The Triumph, 1,100 tons, was the biggest, or guns as heavy as the Spaniards. Instead of attacking in a solid mass, therefore, they spread out, hovered on the flanks, darted a ship here and there, fired as they saw opportunity, and kept their own vessels out of danger as much as possible. In the light and variable winds that prevailed, the great galleons of the Armada were almost immovable, while the English, for the most part, had smaller, lighter vessels, whose nimbleness and ready obedience to the helm astonished the Spanish. Standing low in the water, these would drive their shot right through the enemy's hulls and make off, before the Spaniard could depress his guns enough to do any damage in return, while the army of musketeers, upon whom he had relied so strongly, had little chance to do anything at all. Thus for a week the English frigates and armed fishing boats harassed the armada on its way up the channel, capturing and sinking many of the ships, while losing some of its own, of course, until at last the worried and baffled squadron managed to gain the roadstead of Calais, where the army of the Duke of Parma lay. To carry this army across and begin a campaign against London seemed now not only out of the question, but the safety of the fleet itself was a question, for a few days later, 
when a favorable wind arose several fire-ships came sailing down upon them from the blockading englishmen outside these fire-ships an important part of every fleet for two or three centuries were old vessels intended to set fire to an enemy's ships their yard-arms were set with great iron hooks their hulls and riggings were saturated with oil their decks loaded with tar-barrels and their old guns overloaded so as to spread destruction in every direction by bursting then bold crews sailed these grappling monsters as near the enemy as they dared and it must have been a service dear to the heart of the daring set fire to them lashed their helms and got away in their boats as best they could to escape these dreadful things the spaniards were obliged to up anchor and put to sea losing many ships and lives by fire or the wildly flying cannon-balls or by going ashore in the effort and then the englishmen followed them again like wolves after a herd of buffalo in winter the spaniards dared not go back down the channel and nothing remained to them but the hazardous voyage around the north of scotland a venture for which the towering unwieldy galleons were ill-fitted storms overtook them in the north sea and on the atlantic and so many were cast away on the irish coast where those who reached the shore were slain that hardly half of the proud armada crept back to lisbon and cadiz this incident was one of the most notable in european history for two reasons first historically it no doubt saved england and her colonies from the inquisition and all the other depressing and horrible burdens that long afterward weighted the papal countries of southern europe and their american possessions and second it reformed naval warfare not only by confirming the value of a regularly organized national navy but by showing that the old-fashioned dense fleet formation carrying soldiers to fight as they would do on land was wrong and ineffective but though spain had been humbled she was by no means crushed and sea-fighting went on a long time before either she the french or the dutch and the last were the hardest foes would fully admit england's claim to be sovereign of all the seas around britain and strike their flags whenever they met one of her king's ships in acknowledgment of it england asserted that the domain of her crown covered not only the lands of england and much of france but also the narrow seas and she defended this domain to include all the channel waters north of cape finisterre and thence in a square area westward to the middle of the atlantic this was not an assertion i can beat the world in sea-fighting but was a legal claim to rule a declaration that her laws extended over that much sea in the same manner that it is now agreed that the laws of all nations extend to a distance of three miles from their coasts the whole idea of naval warfare in those days was defense of your own commerce and attack upon your enemies and at that time any one you met under another flag was likely to be your enemy if either party promised spoils worth a fight hence not only did privateering flourish often degenerating into piracy 
not only did all merchant vessels go heavily armed but the royal ships were intended principally for convoying or guarding merchantmen this theory which was only a part of the generally unsettled condition of that formative period kept up a continual state of fighting on the sea even between peoples nominally at peace and of course led again and again to open wars these were almost always popular especially among the bold sailors but poor traders of england on account of the chances for prize and plunder that often more than repaid the expenses and losses of the conflict thus the war with the dutch in sixteen fifty two to fifty four in which william penn was a captain brought in more than six million pounds worth of captures more than the financial cost of the war at this time the first half of the sixteenth century holland was the leading commercial nation of the world not only had her merchants large interests of their own in both the east and west indies very extensive fisheries in northern waters and trading stations in the african and american coasts but a large part of the commerce of other nations was conducted in dutch ships including much of england itself it was the unrighteous but determined effort to break this up by any and every means that brought on the second war with holland one incident of which was the capture of new amsterdam new york for fleets no longer stayed close at home acting mainly as defenders of coasts as in the previous century but now cruised and fought on the high seas as the spanish had learned in many a hard struggle to protect their trading in treasure ships homeward bound this new practice however had required a change in ships and their equipment the english learned this quicker than anyone else they cut down their lofty cabins increased the height while reducing the weight of masts by inventing jointed top masts and replaced the unwieldy lateens by an arrangement of lofty quick-handled square sails by the middle of the seventeenth century ocean-going ships had much the same appearance as at present although far more elaborately ornamented and bulging aft with stern galleries the massive high-pooped spanish galleon surviving longest as a relic of the old type these changes allowed the armament to be taken from the front and rear of the ship where it had formerly been mainly placed there being no room in the waist and allowed it to be distributed equally up and down the ship which now began to deliver the broadsides that formed such a feature in sea gunnery before the days of turreted ironclads and this with the constant improvement in the range and power of the artillery soon brought about ideas of battle formation the early plan was to provide a large number of ships eighty or one hundred on each side in a single action were not uncommon because each was weak and also because a great number of fighting men was thought necessary and then to advance from the windward in a compact mass and endeavor to close with the enemy and capture or destroy him by hand-to-hand -hand promiscuous fighting our word squadron means a square and as applied to ships 
is a survival from those antiquated methods. But when the practice of using fire-ships became common and effective, and trimmer, more active ships superseded the cumbrous galleasses, it was seen that this close formation only exposed a fleet to destruction, and an open order had to be adopted, with a consequent change of tactics. Another lesson was that a sea-fight was a sailor's battle, where soldiers were out of place, and that to take a great number of weak ships into action, crowded with men, was only to risk life unnecessarily. Hence, larger and more heavily armed ships, but fewer of them, appear in later engagements, and in place of a bunch of vessels huddled together like a flock of sheep at which to shoot, the open order gave the gunners small and single targets. End of section 8